Uh, I saw Tiny Cat, by the way. That was a real treat. I got really nervous when he walked in. I'm like, oh no, this is going to be the start. (laughs) No, it's fine. It's fine. I I get that. (laughs) We welcome that. Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner. On balance, I guess I have to admit it's been a pretty decent two weeks around here, as a bunch of pieces have started to click into place with this show. A special welcome to the many new listeners who've joined us lately. It's great to have you. I received some really good feedback, not only about my conversation last episode with Senator Sherrod Brown, but about the show in general over the past few weeks. I'm confident that we're headed in the direction we want, but do keep those emails and social media connections coming. They're really helpful. I'm super excited about the issues we're going to be covering and the people we're going to be talking about on the next bunch of episodes. Speaking of which, next episode, I'll be talking with former Ohio Democratic Party chair and author David Pepper about democracy, autocracy, and how health and healthcare fits into the main themes of his new book. Pretty heady, but really important stuff. But today, we're going to be checking back with someone who was on the show about two years ago, Ginger Christ of Modern Healthcare. I'm sure Prognosis Ohio listeners are going to remember that Ginger used to be a reporter for The Plain Dealer. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you also know that I think healthcare reporters are underappreciated but super critical to our understanding of what's going on around the state. Especially in unearthing stories, it can help us to improve health outcomes and reduce disparities, but also to keep health systems and government accountable. With Ginger now a national healthcare reporter who remains committed to our hometown in the 216, we have a great opportunity to connect with a talented and committed Ohioan who has her ear to the ground on the national healthcare beat. As Ginger covers issues in long-term care and healthcare staffing, or so-called workforce issues, we had no shortage of topics to discuss. In our conversation, we talk about food insecurity among healthcare workers, specific challenges among home healthcare workers, and the many ways in which immigrants and refugees are filling staffing shortages in Ohio and around the U.S., but also, of course, the vulnerabilities that this population of hard workers often faces and how we can protect them. You can read more about Ginger's work in our show notes at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org. And while you're at prognosisohio.com, if you'd like to hear more episodes like this one, please consider supporting the show with just a $3 a month subscription through Patreon. It's easy to do and it really helps us. Oh, and something I often forget to ask is for you to please rate our show by giving us all the stars possible on your podcast app. That's real low-hanging fruit and should just take you a second. Okay, now for my conversation with reporter Ginger Christ of Modern Healthcare. Hey, Ginger, thanks so much for being back on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So it's been a while since we last talked, but a lot's happened in the world. I guess I, w- I want to start with a loaded question that's going to really showcase my incredible interviewing skills um, just to get things rolling, which is how the hell are you? <laughs> Well, you know, it's a definitely a rough time to be a healthcare reporter. You know, I've been a healthcare reporter throughout the entire pandemic. And so, you know, you don't really get to escape the pandemic when it's your job and your life and everything. So, you know, definitely been rough, especially as, you know, I went through COVID, my family went through COVID, and then, you know, you're writing about the thing that you're living. So um, happier to see my family being healthier, happy to, happy to see some of the case rates going down in, in the Cleveland area where I'm based. Yeah. Um, and just ready to, you know, do some good work this year. <laughs> you do post-acute care, but you want to get onto post-pandemic journalism as well. <laughs> that would be wonderful. <laughs> so let's talk about that, though. So you're a post-acute care and staffing reporter at Modern Healthcare. I, I guess I want to just make sure that we all know what that means exactly. Last time we talked, you know, in your previous position, you covered all sorts of different things, including transportation. But it seems like 
your gig now is pretty focused in one particular area. Yeah. So to be honest, you know, before I started covering post-acute care, I didn't really know what that meant. Um, But basically it just means long-term care. So that means hospice, nursing homes, um, home health, things like that. And then for the staffing side, it's kind of self-explanatory. That's like anyone who is a healthcare worker and I cover them. So that would be labor issues. That would be staffing issues, vaccine mandates, all of those kind of things. In the biz, we sometimes call that workforce issues. Yes. (laughs) So the lead from one of your recent pieces on long-term care says it's no secret that the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated workforce shortages in healthcare, but no sector has been as hard hit as long-term care. Uh, I, I was thinking back to 2020, the pandemic in many ways started with a really big focus on nursing facilities. Uh, New Jersey got a lot of national attention at that time. But also, you point out that you're taking a little bit of a different angle than that focus was at that time. You point out that many positions within long-term care are low-wage and increasingly filled by immigrants and refugees. You also talk about food-insecure folks working in, in some of these kinds of positions. So I guess I, I just want to have you talk a little bit about the big picture there. We did food insecurity a couple weeks ago on this podcast, so we've been talking about that a bit. But as you note, we don't often think about the healthcare workforce as also subject to these kinds of economic uh, challenges. Yeah. So as I've been covering, you know, long-term care throughout the pandemic, you know, obviously there's a lot of focus on workers and, you know, most of the the people that make up long-term care workforce are direct care workers. So those are people who are like assistants and things like that. Um, and they're really in these very low paying jobs, you know, below minimum wage kind of positions. Their hours are all over the place. They don't have a lot of benefits, it's things like that. So, you know, these people that like were kind of thrust into this like very high profile kind of position or very, you know, life or death type position during the pandemic, you know, they don't have a lot of the security that we think of healthcare workers maybe having. So at the same time as they're like, taking on all these extra responsibilities, caring for like patients with COVID and, you know, doing this, this like more in-depth care, you know, they're struggling with the pandemic. They're struggling with all of these issues of, you know, access to healthcare of their own and access to food and things like that. So, you know, one of the big issues has been, you know, making sure there's enough workers in the long-term care workforce. And, it's it's been kind of this circular thing because you want to attract people to the workforce, but it's hard to do that when they're not paying very much. But then operators say, you know, we can't pay more because the Medicaid reimbursement isn't high enough from the government so that we can, you know, have the margin to pay more. So you kind of you get in this idea of like, well, how do we how do we improve those situations? So that's a lot of what I've been trying to focus on, you know, throughout the pandemic is, you know, especially more recently, is just looking at like, who are these workers? And what are their struggles? And, you know, how does that affect healthcare of, you know, um, elderly patients? It's not like these facilities or this care is cheap, right? That's the other thing is this contrast of just how expensive long-term care is on the one hand, and then realizing that people who are doing a lot of the work are being paid poverty wages, right? In, in many cases, I mean, you point out that 20% of healthcare support workers are food insecure, for example. And I, I guess I want to also just like put the piece about immigrants and refugees out there. I mean, you talk about these new programs at some places have uh, turned to. We had on this show, Brian Alexander, um, a while back talking about his book, The Hospital. And he talked about Brian, Ohio. 
and how many places in, in, in rural Ohio have also attracted immigrants uh, to, to f- fulfill their workforce needs. It's a, it's a slightly different question here because these are low wage positions. So can you tell me a little bit about those programs and how they're maybe being monitored and kind of policed for exploitation, frankly? Yeah. So that was something that um, kind of came on my radar when I was looking at the work that, um, you know, the White House had like a, a round table about helping refugees and things like that. And so it kind of sparked my interest to say like, well, how many immigrants and refugees are really helping um, or are really part of, you know, this um, long-term care workforce and what role are they playing? Or are we trying to attract people there? And there are a lot of like um, kind of pockets of ideas across the country of, you know, um, different training and trying to, you know, help immigrants, you know, settle or refugees settle um, and get into these programs. There's some training. One of them uh, in New Mexico called Encuentro, which was actually like meeting, means meeting, which I just thought Mm -hmm. was great, um, is like an adult education center um, that works with Latino immigrants. um, And they just do this 15 week program, but they do it all in Spanish um, and then help people learn how to be um, independent contractors in home health. Um, and so that's because, you know, there's a lot of immigration issues at play um, and that way they can kind of be their own boss. But as part of that, to protect workers too from, you know, potentially getting exposed um, or being turned in by someone or just even the fear of that, even if um, maybe it's unfounded or unwarranted, um, is they do all of these kind of like trainings about rights and uh, what you're allowed to do as a home health care worker and how to file things and just to make sure that you're not taken advantage of. Um, so I thought that was really interesting to learn about. And I could tell that the people I spoke to there were just like really passionate about this and like helping people not only find jobs, but like empower them to be their own bosses and to make a career out of it too. Yeah, because working in facilities is one thing, and, and that's hard work. But home health care also comes with all sorts of potential dangers. Um, you know, you hear about violence. You don't know what you're going into, and, and especially when you're dealing with populations that are vulnerable, that may be experiencing mental health crises of various sorts. Like it's just really, really hard work, and not having, uh, a, you know, not being able to 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 see people working in these spaces is, is worrisome, especially when you're dealing with a population that tends to be, um, you know, undervalued and uh, facing disparities of their, uh, on their, in, in their own right. And that was something I thought was interesting too. Some of the data folks that I spoke to about this was, you know, I was trying to just get information on, you know, this workforce um, and trying to learn more about them, but there's just so little data even being collected on this workforce that like, it's hard to understand what's happening to them or how to even make policy changes about like potential disparities or inequities, because there's just not data being collected. And that's not at the federal level, not at the state level. A lot of it really comes down to individual facilities and like, they don't really have the means to make this like take this like nuanced information. So there's just a lot we don't know. Um, and that yeah. that makes it hard to kind of regulate. My understanding is that part of the framing here is that this is largely a for profit industry, right? There are well documented, I mean, health, you know, journalists like you and others, we, we count on them to expose abuse going on in that industry. And there's a long history of it. Is that part of it? Is it just the fact that this industry kind of operates a little bit on the on its own um, under the radar in this for profit frame. Is is that part of why it's hard to collect data, but as well as why it's hard to understand what's going on and actually protect people? 
Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is just, you know, the undervaluing as society that we do toward older Americans. Um, you know, it's a it's a group of people that are often forgotten, you know, and as terrible as that is, but, you know, the pandemic in one sense kind of helped bring attention to some of these facilities and some of the things that are going on there and, and you know, raised awareness about, you know, what what's happening. Um, but for a long time, you know, a lot of people just weren't paying attention. Um, and if there's not attention being paid, as we know, as journalists, you know, that's when things that's when people can get away with things, or maybe even if it's not intentional, you know, a business could operate in a way that might not be the best. So a lot of things can happen when, you know, there aren't eyes on a problem. You know, I mean, you, you mentioned the kind of undervaluing of working with older Americans, and I, I've observed this as a medical educator. Uh, I know we're not talking about physicians exactly here, but, you know, I, I talk to my students about what they want, what they're thinking about doing uh, as physicians down the road. I almost never hear geriatrics. I almost never hear that they want to work with older populations, which is really bad considering that this is where, you know, you look at the demographics, that's where we need more people to be in that area. So there's a real misalignment there at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that's something we see a lot when I, I think about staffing or like recruitment and things. A lot of the positions in healthcare that we need the most are the ones that, you know, people aren't really being funneled to. And that's why there's so much talk about like creating pipelines for specific jobs and, you know, adding, you know, when you think about like long-term care in particular, like adding... Um, value to the work or making it more of a professional role so that people respect that position. Um, so there's a lot of things beyond just getting people into the jobs like that will attract people to those roles. And it's, it's just a lot about how we view some of those positions or their importance in society. So you're a national healthcare reporter now, but you still are, you know, an Ohio faithful and living in in, the, in Cleveland. So I, I, I guess I want to just ask you about the Ohio piece of all this. My understanding is that Ohio's. I was looking at the, one of the maps. It's part of what you're reporting, and we're going to be sharing that out when we when we uh, do our show notes. Um, Ohio's on the on the low side in terms of shortages with AIDS. I mean, we have a problem, but it's not nearly as no pun intended acute as. Um, some other parts of the country. But you also point out that there are these travel contracts. And I'm also seeing this from healthcare professionals I talk with. I know nurses that over the holidays were going anywhere because they were getting paid boatloads of money to go to Arizona or Wisconsin or whatever. So it's really kind of broken the whole marketplace open um, and people are going wherever the money is. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. I guess there's two pieces there, which is, you know, what's the state of things in Ohio and also these these travel contracts, the fact that there's this kind of opening of the market, which means that some places are going to be winners and some places are going to be losers if they don't get on board with paying those kinds of, um, you know, attractive rates. Yeah, so when, when we think about um, the workforce shortages or staffing issues in terms of, you know, the pandemic, you know, throughout throughout all of this, you know, workers are going where the money is. We've seen, I mean, that's part of what the staffing issue is, is that, you know, a lot of nurses and other professionals are leaving their positions, you know, within a hospital or within a system and going, taking on this travel contract. I mean, it's two parts. One part, like, you know, they want to help out where the need is greatest. So there's a surge. They're like, oh, it's my duty to serve and go there. The other hand, they can make a lot more money if they go to these locations where they're still at risk um, 
you know, and they can make, you know, three times their salary. I've seen, you know, signing bonuses or, you know, bonuses and things like that to attract workers of like thousands and thousands of dollars. So like there's this opportunity to make money, but at the same time, like that also um, creates a lot of disparities. So as you alluded, you know, the, the more profitable healthcare systems can pay more so they can bring people in. Whereas, you know, like a smaller system or a rural facility or, like a long-term care facility, like it's very difficult for them to pay those rates and bring people in because they're already so financially strapped. And so you see those kind of situations. In Ohio, I think the, the, the issue has been less just because we have so many, we have medical schools and we have a lot of large healthcare systems, you know, the Cleveland Clinic and, you know, uh, university hospitals and then, you know, Wexner and all of those. So there's just like a lot of very large systems in Ohio um, with with training programs and things like that. And it's a state where people stay after they graduate. So we we haven't had quite as big of an issue just when there have been surges, obviously, like um, Governor DeWine's called in the the National Guard and things like that. But that hasn't really been a sustained thing. That's been more, you know, in dire need kind of situations. So in a way, these discussions lead to something else that you report on pretty regularly, which is labor, right? Em- employer, uh, employee relations. Um, I note that, I mean, I, I used to follow, you know, you, you, you were pretty active with the guild in your previous employment situation. And, and, you know, this, I've seen you as somebody who really takes seriously this question of, um, you know, employees working together to make sure that working conditions are adequate and wages and safety and all of those kinds of things. And so all the pieces kind of come together here. Right now around the country, the employees are exerting their power in a lot of different ways in a lot of different sectors. Um, and we all know about staffing shortages. You go to any store or restaurant, you'll hear about them. Uh, what's the situation in post-acute care, though, when you think about the kind of how shortages are pressing or changing the dynamic, the, the labor dynamic? I mean, do you see more organizing happening? So it's kind of complicated because in post-acute care specifically, there aren't a lot of unionized workers. Um, it's kind of limited and there are pockets, you know, there there will be a group here or there, but it's oftentimes not the whole staff like you would see in a hospital or something like that. So what you're seeing more is just people choosing to leave the jobs and go into other fields. So, you know, you'll see them going to Amazon or Target or McDonald's or, you know, a lot of companies have started offering like tuition assistance and things like that, raising, you know, wages to $15 per hour. And so, you know, there's less risk than post-acute care. So you're just seeing people leave the workforce. So that's them exerting their power and saying, we're not going to work here. That's a stunning visual, by the way, though. (laughs) I mean, people leaving healthcare positions to go work at McDonald's, right? I mean, that's in and of itself worth pausing on and kind of like having your mind blown by (laughs) I know. And I think I sometimes lose track of that because I'm so, you know, focused on, on this every day that I, I kind of forget how surreal some of these things are. <laughs> um, the other side of that is when you think about healthcare workforces in general, so within not just post-acute care, but larger um, healthcare. So we see a lot of tension between labor and uh, management. Um, and as you said, you know, I I'm very versed in this after, you know, I was the, the president of the newspaper guild at my last job. Um, and so I had some experience in understanding kind of how these relationships work. But in healthcare right now, we're seeing a lot more union actions, a lot more union organizing, and a lot more 
just healthcare workers speaking out. Mm -hmm. So for example, I covered pretty, pretty closely, um, like a major strike by Kaiser in California. And they had up to like 50,000 workers that were ready to walk and negotiations had gone on for months and months. And it was things like staffing levels, you know, with shortages, workers are being asked to care for more people. And they say, we can't provide safe care at that point. So things like that, or not getting paid enough, or um, not having the right equipment, personal protective equipment. So things like that, you're seeing a lot of workers just say, you know, we need to be protected. This has shown that a lot of the issues we've had over the years, um, this is really, the pandemic has really brought out why these issues are important. And people are organizing to make sure that they have a voice against their employer or to stand up for themselves. Now, just to kind of pull this apart a little bit, I mean, are these mostly nurses? I mean, nurses are unionized more than any other sector, is my understanding of this in, in, in healthcare. Uh, physicians are not. So so are you seeing certain areas of the health workforce that are exerting labor power in different ways? I mean, in a way, it's interesting because I remember when when the first surges were happening, when the PPE discussion was happening in 2020, there were a bunch of really prominent healthcare professionals who stepped out of line, literally, like they were told, you're not allowed to talk to the media, and they walked outside to the cameras. And this was a time where we were talking about what heroes all these healthcare workers were. So I think they were counting on that being the difference maker. Go ahead, you're not firing me, that kind of thing. So so I guess I w- I'm wondering, is it in certain pockets? Do you see people kind of like stepping out of line in that way? Um, and by out of line, I mean, just like legally, right? Like using the kind of goodwill that we have around this pandemic to say, no, we really need to speak up right now. So we're willing to take a little bit more risk on. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Like, um, that's something I found interesting is the, the, the amount of workers that are willing to to speak out because a lot of facilities have policies against workers speaking to the media or things like that. Um, And that's actually another story that I'm working on um, now on the side is about, um, you know, different physicians and nurses and people like that, that have turned to like social media to, you know, combat some misinformation and things like that. And they're being very vocal in ways that we haven't really seen before. So there's that piece of it. And then also just, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of seeing more dif- uh, more healthcare workers speaking out, I'm seeing that, as you said, nurses have the largest uh, representation in terms of unions. But we're also seeing a lot of other groups organizing as well, like mental health professionals. They've been organizing and you're just seeing like all these other like, you know, pharmacists and things like that, just other groups that are organizing too. Like it's really across the board when you when it comes to healthcare workers. And so it's just this kind of wave of workers saying, we're going through something we've never gone before. We need your support and this is the time to do it. So I'm also curious, I mean, are people willing to talk to you? I mean, has that changed? Sources are always tricky. Different institutions have different degrees of, shall we call it, tight-lippedness. And and I know that that's always something, I mean, you work hard to cultivate sources and people who trust you and are willing to talk with you. Have you found that that's changed over the pandemic? Is that something that you're finding is not that difficult? And, and is there a little bit of a kind of like, um, you know, support happening where people see other people talking in the media and realize that maybe they should use their voices too. So I never want to say that it's easy to talk to healthcare workers because it is very difficult. Um, it's always difficult to find them because 
especially if they don't have a union, it's difficult to connect with someone. And especially to, you know, a lot of people don't have familiarity with the media or how it works. And they don't want to get in trouble. And you know, this is their job. So that's definitely understandable. In terms of um, a lot of unionized workers, I'm definitely seeing a lot more people willing to talk and share their stories and things like that um, than before. Um, but I mean, but healthcare workers in general, I would say are scared, are still scared, you know, to tell their stories They they might be speaking out more, but there's, there's still a lot of fear. I'll just say, you know, wh- one of the things I admire about you is that you're really open about your own life, you know, on, so- on social media, we follow each other on Twitter and things like that. And I'm the, you know, I know this is a changing kind of terrain in our world, right? This, this question, I think like 20 years ago, there was this kind of like, you know, people maybe in journalism were a little bit more hidden, but today there's this decision we all have to make. Do we be open about our own lives and our own struggles, like mental health, for example, or isolation or, or what have you, you mentioned early on and you talked um, openly about having COVID, which I found to be really valuable to hear a, you know, a national healthcare reporter talking about how, and you're not the only one, many of your colleagues have done this as well. So I'd like to ask you a little bit or to have you talk a little bit about kind of how you balance being in this pandemic, but also just being a, an embodied person who experiences health and also being a healthcare reporter, right? And, and also maybe, you know, I'm wondering if there's anything in particular that you, like transitions you've gone through since March, 2020 that have shaped your thinking about this. Yeah. So I've always been very, very open on social media or, you know, even public appearances and things like that, just because I feel like people are more willing to trust me if I'm vulnerable to them. Um, And so I I only think it's fair that I'm as open to sources or the public as I would expect them to be with me. And so I'm hoping that it can engender trust if, you know, they see me as another human who has struggles and flaws and things like that. And, you know, especially, you know, going through the pandemic, you know, I, I lost my job at the plane dealer, um, the, the major newspaper in Cleveland at that time, and all of the things that come along with the pandemic, as you talked about, you know, isolation and loneliness and all of the and being sick and, you know, getting getting the disease you've tried to avoid for two years, you know, right. so all of those things. Um, but I know that a lot of other people are dealing with those things. You know, a lot of other people dealt with job loss and they've seen their family get sick or hospitalized or, you know, they've lived alone or, you know, they, they don't get to see their friends and things like that. So I think it's helpful that the more that we can all come together and just be open about those things, I think it helps bring us closer and it helps just make things easier to know that other people are going through the same kind of things. I love the way you put that. I never thought about that. I've done a lot of media interviews and, you know, they're always asking you, reporters are asking you to share things. And sometimes these are delicate situations and you're always trying to find the right words, not say too much, right? Whatever. But the idea that it can be very one-sided, you know, that that I, the reporters in this pretty extraordinary position of power in, in many of these moments, especially when you're working with vulnerable populations, you're working with uh, low-wage workers, you're working with immigrants, right? These are all really tender situations. Um, so this uh, this idea that, you know, seeing journalists out there as real people can also remind us that it's okay, that we, we're all pushing the line a little bit more and saying we can talk about things that 20 years ago we would have worried if we had said, for example, like depression or addiction or 
these things we would have just been worried that we're just going to get fired immediately for even acknowledging them. But now we're seeing more people saying, no, me too. Right. I, this, this is also something I experience. And I think this is just important to note too, when you talk about media literacy and things like that, that when I am actually interviewing a source, um, I think it's important to make sure that they understand the process and that, you know, like they understand what it means to be interviewed or how things might appear or what it means to be off the record, what it means to be on the record, because a lot of people don't know how that works and you don't want to take advantage of someone's situation for a story. So just want to throw that out there. <laughs> You're a reporter for Modern Healthcare now. I happen to be a subscriber. I'm, you know, in the healthcare education world and the stuff that comes out of, of modern healthcare is really fantastic. I, I, I want to ask you, I mean, so you're living in Ohio, as I mentioned, but you're doing national reporting. How has this sort of shaped your, or what, what did you have to adjust to, to rebalance your thinking or your approach in that kind of an outlet, as opposed to um, something like modern healthcare? Yeah, I mean, it's a big difference. You know, so before I was hyper local, focused on the Cleveland area, somewhat Ohio too, in terms of policy, but mostly Cleveland. And now I'm looking, you know, at healthcare nationally. Um, so there's that piece. Um, so trying to cultivate sources across the country, understand what's going on across the country. So I'm thankful to the local reporters in other communities that are doing that work that helps inform my reporting. And then in terms of the audience, you know, so modern healthcare has a healthcare executive audience and, you know, the plane dealer and print print media and things like that. It's very consumer focused. So for me, I had to switch my thinking between what does the public want to know and change that to what do I need to challenge these healthcare executives on to make sure that they're providing the care that's needed for the public. And so that's kind of how I've made the switch is that I'm in a position where I can talk to healthcare leaders directly and try to affect change at a higher point in the system rather than w before where I was writing to explain some of those changes to the public, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does. And yet I will say, you know, having read a lot of your work over the years, you do it in a way that is, your writing didn't change. At least I didn't perceive it to change, which maybe just because you're really good at it and like you, you know, were able to, uh, you know, just do your thing. But it's very, um, you know, it, it does. It's not executive-y, right? It's it's it doesn't have that kind of a tone. It's still like here. Here's what people are experiencing in the world. And there, of course, this is important because no matter where you are, but especially if you're a high level administrator at some healthcare system, you may lose contact with what's going on on the day to day in any number of ways. So I see the writing you're doing as, as kind of bridging that divide to some degree. Thanks, by the way, for being a subscriber. I didn't say that before. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't, I mean, I wasn't fishing for <laughs> this kind of work is super important. So like one of the reasons why I want to be a subscriber to modern healthcare is so that I can make sure that I'm learning things so I can tell them to my students, for example. Right. So like you said, obviously the media landscape in Ohio across the country is changing. Um, but I am, you know, really encouraged by some of the, the different approaches that we're seeing, you know, so there's some nonprofit outlets that are that are getting started or about to start in in Ohio and Cleveland. And then, you know, we've seen the work that the documenters here have been doing, they, they, you know, train people from within the community to go and attend public meetings, and then 
that, you know, newspaper, larger newspapers just don't have the capacity to cover. So we're seeing different ways for people to get the information out. It's definitely evolving, but I'm, I'm definitely excited to see how some of those approaches that, that bring the community in closer are going to go and help inform us more. Well, it's one of the reasons why I invited you on the show again, uh, because we can talk about the work you're doing and let people know that, you know, it's there. (laughs) And, you know, I just think we all need to amplify one another's work as much as possible because, man, there's just so much going on in the media landscape. It's just this problem of, in some ways, we don't know nearly enough and there are these massive holes. And in other ways, we just feel barraged by it all, all the time and can't sort through any of it, which is a really weird two-pronged kind of problem to have, actually. So I, I appreciate you doing the writing, but also I'm happy to see if we can you know, let a few people know that this is something they should be looking at. Thank you so much. And everyone stay safe. Many thanks to Ginger Chris for joining me on the show. As always, we've got lots of links and follow-up items in our show notes at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org. It's under the podcast experience tab. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. The music was produced by Kyle Rosenberger. We received help with the show notes and other production assistance from Lexi Merritt. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and check out the show's evolving social media presence, please visit the show's website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. We'll be back in your podcast feed soon, next time with a conversation with author and former Ohio Democratic Party Chair David Pepper. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss that one. Thanks for listening and be well.